Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Tuparev Technologies. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-pilot, Mr. Jason Snell. Oh, that's so nice of you to place me in the co-pilot seat. Well, we're co-piloting together. I see. That's, Jason, that's take good. the wheel sort of situation. Well, okay. You'll be you'll be safe with me. <laughs> it's going to be yeah, fine. So uh, before we get into this, we're recording this on May 19th. We are rapidly approaching the commercial crew launch date. I would say we're still sort of finalizing what we're going to do about that. I would say make sure that you are following the show on Twitter. It's at Liftoff Podcast. Uh, we will have details over there once we kind of work out what we're going to be doing for that launch. I think we're going to live stream watching it together, but we're still kind of putting yeah. that together. Yeah, we we got to figure out all the details, yeah. but I, I think we'll do that. And then uh, then we'll be back to recap it next time, whatever happens, assuming that they even try, because, you know, sometimes things get pushed back and scrubbed, but they're they're serious about it. They want to go next uh, week, so. Cool. I'm excited. Week the, next week will be the week of commercial crewing. <laughs> just get a smaller and smaller, smaller. Well, okay, we got some pre-flight mm-hmm. checklist items to go through. Our our prefect list. I wanted to start with the launch of a Chinese rocket. Now you may have heard me talk in the past about some of these Chinese rocket launches. We've talked about it here before. They some of the Chinese rocket launches happen like in the middle of China, and so they the like the stages just drop on like parts of china yeah. and sometimes like people's cars and houses and stuff get crushed by spent rocket stages and stuff it's not Mm-mm. great not the best um but this is this is a different variety entirely this is the long march 5b rocket which is a, a new and uh very large rocket that uh, that china has big plans for and it launched on may 5th it has four boosters in this configuration. So there's the core stage, but they have four different separate boosters to start it out. And then uh, to give that extra boost, that means that the core stage reached orbit instead of just kind of uh, coming back down and landing in the ocean. And uh, it then made an uncontrolled re-entry because it was still in low orbit and there was nothing to be done about it. And China hasn't really said anything about kind of why or what Mm -hmm. they're doing or whether this was normal or an accident or expected or whatever. But it's been since 1991 that an object this large had an uncontrolled re-entry. That was the Salyut space station, the Russian space station. Um, And uh, as sometimes happens, even though there's a lot of water on the surface of the Earth... Uh, sometimes you don't hit water, sometimes you hit land. And it seems like uh, Cote d'Ivoire in Africa may have gotten uh, hit with some debris, in, including some fairly large debris from this vehicle. And um, as Ars Tactica pointed out, if you think about the trajectory of this thing, if it had re-entered 15 or 20 minutes earlier, all of that uh, debris would have rained down over New York City. That's not what New York needs right now. Yeah, it's not good. It's not. I mean, nobody no. needs to be on the the playing the the lottery for who's going to get hit by Chinese space junk. That's not good. Yeah. It's it's a bad situation. In this ours article, there's uh, some some quotes about maybe the size of the objects that hit the surface, like up to 300 kilograms. I mean, that's 
serious. And this is not something yeah. that China can keep doing. They got to figure out what happened. And, you know, they, they're not very transparent when it comes to launch failures. There've been, there've been launches in the past where like, there's clear evidence that the rocket outright failed and like, Oh no, it's fine. Like it totally launched. It's like, yeah, but yeah. then it blew up. And so I don't know. I don't know yeah, if they're so ever really going to say what we happened. don't actually know. We don't actually know whether this was just their intent all along was to just dump the stage mm-hmm. somewhere and see what happened and they just don't care or whether something went wrong. But it's not good. Like this is a 21 ton core stage. It's not great. The um, at least parts of the rocket engines would probably have survived. Um, and NASA, for one, reacted negatively. Jim Bridenstine, who's the NASA administrator, had some harsh words for China after this happened. He actually referred to it as an irresponsible activity in the context of talking about sort of setting some rules for, for lunar exploration that we're going to talk about later on. He, he cited this as an example of why um, having the international community agree to some, some rules and guidelines, uh, this was his example of like, or you could be irresponsible and do stuff mm-hmm. like this. So and and the thing is, this Long March Five is not going anywhere, right? It, it's a cornerstone of China's space program. Yeah, it's going to be used to build their space station. I mean, this is a heavy lift vehicle, and they're going to have modules lifted into orbit uh, atop it. So, yeah, if this is their plan, is just to ditch this thing, then I think there's going to be there's going to be more talk about this before it's over. Yeah, it's not it's not great. Like it's bad enough that they're raining down rocket debris in their launches that are not mm-hmm. on the coast. Um that, that they're just raining down debris on people who live in the flight path. But um if their if their attitude ends up being that they don't really care anywhere in the world gets hit by debris, they just it's not their problem. That's uh that's not good. That's that's really not good. So we'll have to keep an eye on it and and see what's going on, but uh Anyway, yeah, not great. Cote d'Ivoire, um, like, I guess, check outside your in your backyard. You might you might have a rocket engine back there. I don't know. Oh, scary. It really is. All right, so we are getting closer to the launch date for the Mars 2020 rover, now known as Perseverance. And leading up to this, NASA has been sharing a lot about the testing that the rover has undergone to prepare it and make sure that it's good to go for the harsh environment of the Martian surface, which is not a super nice place to be, as we've as we've spoken about. Big temperature swings, it's very cold. You have wind that basically blasts you with little particles. You have radiation. Not not the, the nicest place to be in the solar system. Not the worst place, but not the nicest either. And so they outlined a few uh, different tests that they've gone through. Some of them we spoke about as they were happening. These have happened over the last couple of years. But kind of putting them all in one place today, there was a shake and acoustic testing platform that they put the rover on to make sure they could withstand the forces put upon it at launch, which will be atop a ULA Atlas V rocket. Rockets are, of course, noisy and not smooth rides. You want to make sure that none of your rover falls off on the way on the way out. Uh, They also did a lot of supersonic parachute testing. Going to Mars is hard for a lot of reasons, but one of the biggest Mm. reasons is there's very little atmosphere to slow you down. So you're traveling very, very quickly going from Earth to Mars, and then you have to slow down to make a nice, gentle touchdown on the surface with not much air 
to make that possible. So they have these absolutely huge parachutes that come out at supersonic speeds. The main parachute for this is 70 feet across, about 21 and a half meters. Absolutely massive. These were tested, uh, Jason, not far from you, at, at Ames in their giant wind tunnel. They yeah. unfold them and and put them. They love that wind tunnel. They do. Hey, it's, <laughs> That's why it's, there. it's cool. <laughs> it's huge, yeah. Uh, there's not many places you can probably test something this big like that. That's why Ames is there. Uh, they also tested the parachute system using sounding rockets. So they would use these these sounding rockets, launch, and then expose the parachute to the really heavy load, like 67,000 pound, 37,000 kilogram loads. That's 85% more than the mission's parachute is expected to encounter. But just like talking about making uh, a, a spacecraft human rated, a lot of this testing is well above and beyond what is expected to happen on a mission. So you always want plenty of margin, which is what this testing is about. They're not going to have this much load on this parachute, but they want to make sure that it could withstand it if if it needed to. Uh, they also tested the mortar system that is used to deploy the chutes. They have this really awesome slow motion GIF on the page that you should go check out uh, that actually will launch the parachute and get it opening, just like they did. We talk about our Apollo missions, very similar system there. Uh, also, temperature testing. Mars is cold, and night it is really, really cold. So they ensure not only the electronics, but all the mechanical systems will be on okay, both in sunlight and in night. So you have, of course, the electronics, but you have pneumatics, you have uh, mechanical parts that actually, gears and teeth that actually have to move, make sure all of that does its job in extremely cold temperatures. Uh, and lastly, a lot of testing with the cameras. Perseverance is going to take 25 cameras on it to take care of different parts of the mission. Some record video, some are photos, some looking at different wavelengths of light. And each of those cameras had individual testing for its focal ability, exposure settings, the video making sure the frame rate was correct, and not just that the camera could capture the right frame rate, but there was enough bandwidth to get it to the computer and make sure it's saved quickly enough. All of that testing has gone on. And now we're we're pretty close to to this really happening. We're talking about February 2021 for it touching down on Mars. So we are just right around the corner at this point. Yeah, it's it's good. It's good to see. I like it. I, I like that we're getting closer. You got to do these final mm-hmm. tests, but then uh, make it happen. Yeah, yeah. It's it's launch window is going to be here really before we know it. Yeah, we don't get to delay that either. That it's just going to the the window opens and then it closes, and it, hopefully you've launched something to Mars. Yep. And if not, you got to wait two years. So it they really yeah. want to make sure all their ducks are in a row, and uh, we will I think ramp up our coverage of this as we get closer and closer. I've got a little little thing before we get to our okay. main topic, which is just a uh, it's actually an opinion piece that was written in uh, Space News, spacenews.com. But it's by Robert Zubrin, who is the the you might know him as the Mars guy. He who, who has made lots of proposals about like how you get astronauts to Mars. Um, he's been thinking about space logistics and writing about it and talking about it for a very long time. And he wrote a piece about Artemis. And last time on this show, we were talking about the different lunar lander possibilities and what NASA had funded. And we were kind of uh, skeptical and wondering why they had funded these different mm-hmm. programs. Um, and so he he wrote a piece, even though he's famous for talking about Mars, he wrote a piece about the moon and the logistics there. 
And we talked about how SpaceX's Starship is one of the things being funded by NASA for this lunar program. And Zubrin basically says the Starship landing on the moon um, makes no sense as a part of Artemis because it's huge and heavy and it has, then it has to lift off again and it's, it doesn't make sense. But he, he actually kind of says Starship does seem like it would be really cool if they can take it to Earth orbit and fuel it up like is described in the in the plan and then take it to lunar orbit and put it in a polar lunar orbit and use it as a fuel depot. So instead of having the Starship uh, craft land on the surface, what if you keep it in orbit and fill it with fuel? And he does the math and says that depending on what your lander is and what all the issues are and what um, what fuel you're using, it could a Starship in orbit around the moon could enable 16 separate sorties to the lunar surface and back, which is pretty cool. Um, that's, that's a, a, you know, he's thinking about reusability and how you get all that fuel out there. And this would be a way to make it a lot mm-hmm. easier by creating a, just a, basically a gas station around the moon. Um, and then he says, eventually, as we're building up lunar capability, you would use the Starship craft to land, but you would not build it to come back he said its size makes it a good candidate to be part of a base because there's a lot mm. it's huge and you could you could use that space but he says in that configuration he doesn't see it being something that makes sense to go down and come back up but it makes a lot of sense to just put it down and then you've got all of that livable space inside uh, starship so uh, it's just an interesting little piece where you can see somebody who's really smart and has been thinking about this stuff a lot is looking at the different options for the moon and um, and doing some math and and sort of like thinking like what parts, how do we use the parts that have been listed here to get something that makes sense? And so, so yeah, I recommend people look at it. It's interesting. And uh, there's going to be a lot more of this over the next few years as we're talking about uh, lunar landers, because you do have to make some decisions about all these stages. And as we talked about last time, so many different steps in the process in terms of what you have to put in orbit and what you have to put at the moon and how you get it all to work. And it's all yet to be worked out. So uh, interesting read. I think it's really fascinating thinking about this potential use of Starship in conjunction with Gateway itself, because I mean that Gateway being sort of the the check in check out point of going to the moon, this sort of thing would make it I think a lot more useful of a stopping point. I mean, since our last episode, there like there was a story saying, oh well, Gateway's out of the critical path for 2024, but maybe that's not. Like specifically true, it's sort of unclear at this point where Gateway fits into the 2024 and then later missions. But having Starship there as a uh, as a helper to Gateway and then using that as a base, I love that idea of reusing that. It is it's so smart. Like I read through this, I was like, yes, like this this makes a ton of sense to me. And surely SpaceX and NASA have thought about this, or if they haven't, I'm sure they are now. But that's something that Starship kind of is uniquely suited to as well, right? So you have Orion and you have Gateway and you have the, the whatever the lunar uh, module ends up being. Let's just say the Blue Origin one wins just to have something to talk about. All of those are, are purpose-built pieces of hardware. 
And that's how it worked in the 60s and 70s with Apollo, right? Each component had its job. But if you talk about sustained presence on the moon, fuel and water and food are like the three things, you know, three of the things you have to have. And there's not really an answer for fuel at this point. And using Starship that can be a flying gas station, like you said, but then also be part of a habitat, like being able to reuse it in these different ways is a strength that Starship kind of alone has. And that is super interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, because it's not being built for one to fulfill one purpose. Right. Right. It's not being built like, well, the government is going to ask us to build a lunar lander. So we're going to bid on that. It's this is being built because Elon Musk is like, I've got big ideas and I'm going to make a big rocket and then we'll see what we can do with it. And that makes it interesting because it's got all these different applications. And the truth may be that it's not really well suited for almost any of them or any of them. But the idea is uh, different in that you have this uh, this thing that that will be theoretically capable of uh, doing this very specific stuff and having these stats and then you sort of look around and say well what could we use that for which is a very different process it's fascinating it is so different from all these other things and you know it's it's early days for starship and it has a long way to go before we even really understand like you said what it would be good at but this sort of like drastically different use cases over the lifetime of a piece of hardware would be it's like right up SpaceX's alley, right? It's right up their alley in terms of reusability. All right. So we wanted to talk some about Starlink changes. Starlink, of course, is SpaceX's family of satellites designed to form a constellation providing internet access in underserved areas around the world. They've had several launches right. so far, uh, but they only have a fraction of the number of satellites they will eventually have in orbit hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and the you know the problem is that they are they're shining especially at sunrise and sunset and they're polluting the the sky they're interfering interfering with telescopes on the ground and almost all of our telescopes are on the ground and this has been a back and forth we've talked about it here before spacex seems to be well aware of the issue but there's a question like what are they going to do about it and when we talked about china and saying well you know are they going to keep doing this there is one aspect uh of space law and we we had that whole space law segment of you we have one coming up too we got one this week oh yeah and there's there's a we got a lot of space law happening in this episode the idea there is that like who's going to stop them like it's great that spacex is concerned it seems like if they wanted to just release the brightest possible satellites that ruined everything they could just do that and you know people maybe the government and would frown upon it and try to use some influence but it's not like somebody can say you're in violation of space law x to do this um but they are they are working on it um and in uh, late April, they released a document that detailed all of the different uh, mitigation attempts, so relatively recently. The goal, they say, is to make the, the spacecraft invisible to the naked eye within a week of launch, because you've got to kind of get them on orbit and then uh, transit to their final kind of uh, working location. And that can create some, uh, some mm-hmm. brightness. But that the idea is when we get them parked and working, we we don't want you to see them. That's what SpaceX is saying. So they're changing the software. They're going to fly them in a different orientation so that they're not reflecting sunlight to the ground. Um, the, and definitely the biggest problems are when they're in the parking orbit or they're raising up 
on station is not the problem here. They, SpaceX says it's it, it shouldn't be a problem. So first thing they did is they did this experimental treatment, and we talked about it, the dark sat, where they made one of the satellites sort of coated with darker material, hoping that that would help. And it uh, was less, less reflective by about half, uh, but it also, as you might expect, a darker satellite, guess what? It caused heat issues because mm. it's yeah. hotter. It gets hotter. Can't do that. It's not not so great. So they're trying something else. They've got this thing that they're calling the visor sat. And it's a foam sunshade that is uh, going to block the light from reflected off of the satellite, but allows radio waves to pass through. So it'll still be, you'll be able to sort of hide the satellite, cover it up in terms of visual uh wavelengths but still communicate to and from the satellite without any trouble and that's what they're trying um and they their plan right now is that when they start deploying the the i think it's the batch after next of starlinks in june um they should all have those sun visors and that's that's what they're going to try to do now as a way to basically shade them so that we can't see down here on Earth, we aren't seeing their reflections while they're still able to do their job transmitting data back and forth and being an internet constellation. Yeah, hopefully the visor plan works. There's this this really interesting article on actually the SpaceX website talking about the history of this and these different plans that they've had. And some of it's a little defensive in places, but uh, I think they are trying to do what they can to minimize this issue. They don't want the, they don't want like a vast number of people in their field angry at them over this, I don't think. And mm-hmm. so trying to mitigate this is, is absolutely uh, vital. And, and, you know, the, but doing it, like you said, in a way where the satellites can continue to function, you can't have these things overheating. And then if they die and you don't have control of them, like that's a whole other set of problems, Right. And so they've got to uh, uh, be able to to make this work, and hopefully the sunshade, the visor situation, uh, is what it needs to to get what they want done. Because I think this is I think this is like an important product to have in the world, right? I think having internet access in underserved sure. areas is important, but it shouldn't be at the cost of scientific discovery. So finding that balance, I think, is what everyone's after. What the document, and we'll link to it. The document talks about how they're they're um, working with not only kind of astronomical organizations, but SpaceX is also talking directly to one of the the operators of one of the biggest and most sensitive telescopes on Earth. And, you know, what they're basically saying is these people are the ones who are going to know, like, how we will mess up their their observations. So we're going to talk to them about how their thing is built and figure out ways to make our stuff not get in their way. And, you know, and also a lot of this is putting things in tracking databases so you know when to look in certain areas and when not, when the satellite's passing by. And that happens now, too. So um, they seem to be, it's, it's, you know, they're not flinching on the plan to deploy Starlink, but they seem to also want to be seen as a good citizen. So um, because the truth is, you know, SpaceX and astronomy you think about those those two fields they're related and i think spacex is well aware that if they're perceived as being jerks who've ruined astronomy that nasa 
for example, who pays them a lot of money is maybe going to not like them as much and not view them so favorably. So um, you don't want to create a, a situation where you become the villain of the scientific mm-hmm. establishment when you're counting on a science agency to, for a lot yep, of your money. Exactly. So I, I think they do want to they want to do the right thing. They're, they've got a motivation there, but they also don't want to be seen as villains. And yet they also are not interested in in pulling the plug on the Starlink concept because I think they think it's important and I think they may be right. Like the the promise in a lot of underserved areas of getting solid Internet connection is potentially huge because there are lots of places out there, um, even in the U.S., let alone worldwide, that uh, don't have Internet of any quality at all, even in 2020. So I applaud that aspect of it, too. So I'm glad that they're going to hopefully this uh, foam foam visor it's like a koozie for a satellite <laughs> space koozie uh will will take care of it you want to take a break yeah okay let me tell you about our sponsor this episode is brought to you by tuparev technologies tuparev believes in creating modern tools for the astronomy community for all apple platforms and for the web and that's whether you're a professional astronomer an amateur a student or you just love looking up at the night sky, the team at Tuparev Technologies is now revealing that their first application is called Starbrush. It will handle any astronomical data, 2D images, spectroscopic data, data generated by radio observatories, multidimensional color images, and sky surveys, astronomical tables and catalogs, and it will work on Mac, iOS, and in the cloud. Starbrush will allow you to calibrate your images by building image pipelines of any complexity, perform a myriad of image analysis tools, and support your research in astrometry, photometry, and spectroscopy. Ooh, that was fun to say. Finally, Starbrush will allow you to automate your nightly image processing tasks. If you want to get early access to Starbrush and be one of the first to join their astronomy community, go to starcluster.app slash liftoff and join their email newsletter. That's starcluster.app slash liftoff. And you can join their email newsletter. Thank you to Tuparev Technologies for supporting Liftoff and Relay FM. Space law time. Space law. In space, there are two sorts of law. The law that people pay attention to and the law that people don't. This is their story. Clink, clink. (laughs) That's good. I think you once said that space law was going to be a one-time thing, but here it is. It's back. It's back. This is space law too, the wrath of space law. (laughs) <laughs> so this past week, NASA unveiled what it is calling the Artemis Accords. But before we get to those, we need to do some space law history, which is everyone's okay. favorite subject. I'm going to make this as quick as I can. I just... Oh, 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 is it like that old movie, The Paper Space? You got it out of your system now? You guess Spacer? What is happening? Chase? Jason's broken. Okay, I'm done. Okay, so in 1967, the United States, United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union signed the Outer Space Treaty. You may have heard of this. It's uh, been around. It's been updated over the years. But kind of at the high level, what the OST does is it puts a ban on weapons of mass destruction being put in Earth orbit, on the moon, or any other celestial body. Think about the time, right? We're all... Still kind of worried about everyone nuking each other to death. And uh, so can't do that in space. Conventional weapons were not banned. Uh, So that's a fine print there. Hmm. Nice. So the second tenet is that it limited the use of the moon and other celestial bodies to purely peaceful purposes. 
So things like weapon testing, military exercises, that was all prohibited. Can't do any of that stuff. No government could claim another body as its own. So if you were the first to land a robot on an asteroid and say, this is now part of our country, can't do that. The OST forbids that. And this is sort of the framework that space exploration has operated under since 67. The rules that govern the International Space Station are based in this. It's its own agreement, but they, they are very much in harmony. And it, like I said, it's been updated over the years. But there are gaps. There's ambiguous language in places. And so as recently as 2015, laws or other agreements have been put in place. So in 2015, the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act was signed into law. I think we talked about this, but it allows commercial companies to explore and collect resources found on the moon and on asteroids via mining. So it was the space mining law. It was kind of the, the short-term thing. That's right. That was the, uh, you, you find it, you keep it in space. Exactly. Finders keepers. And that all brings us to the Artemis Accords, which are a set of principles that NASA expects other countries to adopt if they want to partner with the U.S., in exploring cislunar space and the moon and utilizing resources on the moon. So kind of if you want to be part of like this Artemis generation of, of discovery, they're going to expect you to agree to these, these principles. And again, these are very much in harmony with the OST and with the International Space Station Agreement. But there are several points here. I thought we'd kind of walk through them and see mm-hmm. what we think about them. How does that sound? Sure. Let's do it. All right. So... First one is uh, peaceful purposes. So just like the OST, you can't use the moon or other bodies for non-peaceful purposes. Thumbs up. Don't want a war on the moon. Yep. Second one is transparency. We just spoke about this with that China rocket. But countries involved are expected to publicly describe policies and plans in a timely manner. So to say... We are doing this at this time. This is what we want to do. Funny that China came up as a part of that. Interesting. They uh, struggle with transparency a little bit. <clears throat> up next is interoperability. So using open international standards across systems. This made me think about the docking modules on the International Space Station, where they, they installed one of those a couple of years ago that SpaceX and Boeing will be able to use during commercial crew. There's having shared hardware where systems will interface. A lot of this is a necessity, but they, I think they want everyone to be on the same uh, team, same kind of same playing field here when it comes to hardware and systems where possible. I think this really feeds into the next one, which is emergency assistance. So NASA and all partners will commit to take reasonable steps to help astronauts in distress. And so you can see that could be made easier if something, you know, God forbid something really serious happened and you need to interface systems in a way they weren't designed for, if you have interoperability, a lot of that is made possible. Mm -hmm. Registration of space objects. Uh, Already there is a registration vault where anyone who launches anything, uh, satellites, spacecraft, anything at all has to be registered for the safety of all space activities. This includes public and private hardware. So, All of those Starlink satellites are registered, right? They all have an ID. We know where they are. 
This is just reinforcing right. that. This is already in place, but saying, hey, this is important as we venture further out from Earth orbit. Release of scientific data. Countries should release scientific discoveries publicly and in a timely manner. Again, something the U.S. does, right? We talk about this. I mean, how many episodes have we talked about where, hey, this has come back from New Horizons or from Juno or from OSIRIS-REx, and the scientific community has access to all of that stuff, and the U.S. wants other countries it works with to live up to that ideal as well, which is which is fantastic, especially if you think about long-term success on the moon and even going beyond the moon to Mars it's going to take discovery from every country involved to pull that off. If let's just hypothetically say that another country discovers, hey, we can turn water ice into these things with this method we've come up with, and there's research that comes out of that, it's it's good for all involved for that to be shared and for it to be shared timely and in a transparent manner. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about this next one? Moon museums? so it's protecting heritage which is a pretty simple one the idea there is that nobody go to the apollo 11 landing site and like take strip it for uh souvenirs and bring them back to earth so it's the idea that you keep historic artifacts and sites pristine when you're on the moon don't don't blow up you know don't drop your your uh your fuel tanks so that they smash into the Apollo 12 landing site, for example. Just don't do not do that. Fantastic. I think this will even mean that with a radius around these areas can't be used for landing or takeoff. We, we've spoken about this some in our Apollo coverage, but the surface of the moon is covered in this dust, and with n- very little atmosphere, it can speed up very quickly and damage equipment around it during... You know, lift off right. or, or or touchdown, and so I would imagine there will be some sort of radius set around these that no one crosses this line for any reason, especially for uh, either coming down to the surface or leaving the surface. Uh, space resources. This plays into that that uh, act of 2015 extraction. Yeah. The asteroid mining, yep. basically mining on the moon, Mars, and asteroids. Using those resources is critical and are allowed to be conducted as long as they follow the rules set forth in the OST and, and other other agreements. I like the um, the deconfliction of activities clause, which is basically to say, don't trespass and monkey around with what other people are doing on the moon. So the idea here is like you create not just around historic uh, items, but you create bubbles that are like safety zones around where somebody is or where somebody's working and sort of say, okay, these people are here, so don't go there. You know, leave them alone and go somewhere else, which is, I kept thinking of For All Mankind while I was Mm. reading this, because let's just say, spoilers for For All Mankind that are, I'll keep a minor, but um, many of these are violated in For All Mankind. I was like, yeah, there should be a rule about that, shouldn't there? I've seen For All Mankind. It's, yeah. yeah. I think the first one may also be broken (laughs) for all mankind. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, And then lastly, orbital debris and spacecraft disposal. Nations will agree to to plans for disposing hardware after missions to mitigate an increase in the amount in orbital debris. That's already an issue in different parts of low Earth orbit. We don't want to make that any worse. So plans to uh, ditch hardware in 
in an orbit around the sun or to have it uh, deorbit safely, not over New York City or the coast of Africa. Huh? Again, things hmm. that are expected now, but as we do more stuff in cislunar space and on the lunar surface, this hardware is going to get bigger, it's going to be moving faster, and this is an important step in keeping uh, the gateway to, to beyond orbit safe for everybody. I uh, have some thoughts about this. Stephen, I've got some issues with this thing. Okay, I, I've, I've, I, I think the text of this document is actually good. It's the U.S., which is trying to lead uh, a return to the moon, saying, "Hey, when we go back to the moon, let's follow some rules, everybody." Which is a lot. E- I mean, it's easier to do that if you're not leading the way, and you're like, "Wait, wait, wait, everybody, wait, wait for me, and follow these rules while I'm not there." And instead, they're like, "No, we're leading, and we're going to set these rules down that we think should be followed because we think it's right." Um, I don't have a problem with that. Here, here are the things I've got a problem with. Okay, first off, they put their brand name in it, which is by calling it by branding it as the Artemis Accords for the purposes of their yeah, marketing. I, I think don't like that's, that. I think that's. Annoying, although I get what they're saying, which is really like if you want to be an international partner, like you said, on this program, we want these to be the rules. I will also point out that uh, it's kind of rich to just declare what the rules are as one of the participants in a theoretically international group and say everybody needs to follow our rules, which I know uh, Russia definitely uh, pushed back on it. In in kind of wild terms, because the guy who runs Roscosmos has a Twitter account where he yells a lot, but um, but he's not wrong about the idea of like what you want us to be involved, and you just gave everybody the rules. <laughs> it's like it's not not really being a participant in an international community. Which brings me to my larger point, which is they the marketing name is the Artemis Accords. An accord is an agreement among many parties. This is not an accord in any way. If they had announced this and said that all of these uh, countries had already signed on and we had worked on this document together and everybody agreed and now there are 10 countries that have agreed to the use of, of, uh, of the moon, it would be an accord. This is not an accord. There's nobody accord. Who accorded to this? Who who was involved in the agreement here? Of the what are the multiple parties? There are none. This is the American government saying, "Hey, everybody, we made some moon law, uh, and our word is the law, and you need to agree with us if you want to play ball with us." Meanwhile, not only is Russia cranky about it, and then there's China, which by American law is not able to even talk to people from the U.S. space program because they have been banned from uh, speaking to NASA. It's just, we, we don't allow that anymore. So what are they doing? We don't even know. And they're not following any of these rules. Is there any attempt to get China and Russia to also uh, sign on to an idea about peaceful use of the moon? I don't know. So that's, I, I admire what's in the document. I don't appreciate the fact that it's being marketed in a way that is, I think completely self-centered and misleading. You know, I I totally agree with that. And I think that we're going to see that play out a little bit in how other countries respond. It's like Russia's cranky about it. 
In fact, it was it was compared to the U.S. invasions of Iraq. Which is like, yeah, that may be a little strong. Yeah, he said something like it's a coalition of of acronyms yeah. or something like that. Which is you get some people behind you and you say, well, this is what the rule is now. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a shot. Like I said, it says a lot of angry things on Twitter, but. You know, I don't get the sense that this is a result of an international group agreeing that these are the right things to do. This feels very much like a press release and PowerPoint presentation put out by Americans saying, here's what the rules of the moon are. Yeah, I would I would feel so much better about this if the U.S., if this was announced as, hey, you know, we work together with our partners and this is what we're announcing together. But yeah, sticking the name Artemis on it and and making it the U.S. saying, "Hey, this is what we're going to do." It and selling it as if it's some sort of international treaty when it's not. It's just uh, it's just uh, uh you know it's just NASA or United States government mm-hmm. PR. Like it's not it's not an international agreement. It is literally if you want to be the most uh or the least charitable, let's say, it is. NASA saying, here are the rules we're following on the moon, and if you want to be our partner, you got to follow our rules. That's what it is. So you can put a name on it, and you can brand it, and you can call it the Artemis Accords and make it seem like everybody's kind of joining hands and singing Kumbaya and all of that, but that's not what's happening here. This is this is um, the U.S. exerting its total authority over the moon and pretending that it's like an international agreement. Yep, that's well said. And it, it's so... I'm so conflicted on it because I do agree with the things that are in it, right? Like the content of yeah. it's not bad. We can quibble about details, but the way it was rolled out just puts a, a stain over the whole thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I, um, now, now that I've, I've kind of, <laughs> uh, laid waste to this in this episode, I might as well go all the way. And I will say, I'm not surprised it was rolled out this way, given who's in charge of NASA. Yeah. This seems completely in line with what the current administration does in terms of how it views the world, which is if we want your opinion, we'll give mm-hmm. it to you. And so here it is in its final form where we're following up the Outer Space Treaty, which was signed by all of these nations on the Earth with the Artemis Accords, which are the product of a single country. Welcome to 2020. <laughs> Yeah, there's a launch window opening up soon. It's the year of commercial crew, and there's a global plant pandemic. You know, there's the a little from column A, a little from column right. B. Well, I think that does it for this fortnight. Uh, like I said, we're going to be back hopefully next week at that launch, talking about commercial crew. So stay tuned for what we're going to do on that. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, I definitely like go explore the the links around the Artemis Accords. There's a lot to this. We sort of gave the high level. Uh, if you're interested in that, there's a lot more reading to do. Uh, so we have some links in the show notes for you. Those are at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 124. While you're there, there's a lot of fun activities you can take part in. You can become a member and support Liftoff directly. You can send us an email with feedback or follow-up, or you can find us over on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as Jay Snell. You can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>